0: We're starting a new series today, uh, and we're going to kind of zoom through the rest of the book of Genesis. We took some time in Genesis 1 through 3 to lay some important foundations, but we're going to kind of finish out the book of Genesis over the next six weeks or so. You see, that's like 40 chapters. It is 45 or so, a lot. Uh, Enough that we're not going to do it justice in the next six weeks, but we're going to kind of hit some of the high points And there's great truth that God wants us to learn. And if you're not careful, sometimes in our own Bible study or listening to sermons, we can begin to think that people are the heroes. Look at that guy. Look at his faith. amazing. Look at David. Swung that, you know, scared to death, swung that stone, killed that giant. I can kill giants too. (laughs) Slow down a little. God is the ultimate actor. He is the ultimate force He is the ultimate person, the ultimate character in our Bibles. What's extraordinary is not people. People are failing. People are flawed. You want to find that out, just start placing your trust in people. Place your trust in your spouse. You will be disappointed. Place your trust in pastors. We are human. Place your trust in some hero you have. It's shocking how often you meet your hero and you're like, well, that was disappointing. Why? Because we're just people. We're going to read the story of Noah today. You know what the story of Noah ends with? It's an incredible story of God's rescue and God's judgment. You know what it ends with? Noah gets drunk. And there's shame and mistakes involved, sin involved. You know why the Bible tells us that? Because it wants to remind us. The people we're reading about in the Bible are real people. And yet there's this distinction. Trusting God, walking by faith, going our own way. And so as we survey through the rest of the book of Genesis, Dini and I will kind of share that preaching over the next six weeks or so. We want you to walk away with this thought. These are ordinary people who follow God by faith. But there's an incredible God who makes promises and rescues and shows grace to people who really need it. That's where our trust should rest, is not it? That's where our hearts should run. The verses that Daniel wrote at the beginning, don't say, Gospel Hope Church is my shield. Matt Parker is my shield. Don't do that. If I'm your shield, you got a lot of problems. A lot of holes in that shield. Just just ask my friends. I just saw Ron mouthing amen. (laughs) So wrong. (laughs) But he's my friend. He knows. Okay? So... There's great grace in these stories. There's great faith. And in reality, it sets the scene for what the whole rest of the Bible is going to walk us through. Think of the words of Ephesians 2. For by grace, you have been rescued, saved through faith. And you did a great job. This is not your own doing. It's a what? Gift of God. Not of works, so that none of us will be bragging to each other. Here's the funny thing. A lot of us brag on the inside, pretty good. Better than that guy. My marriage ain't great, but it's not as messed up as that. Grace, faith, it's the gift of God, not of works so that none of us will boast. And God's doing something incredible. Once you know him, you are his what? Workmanship, we're his project. Created for him to do good works through us that'll bring him glory. That's the story of the Bible. So we're in Genesis chapter six, listen to God's word for us this morning. These are not Matt's words or Gospel Hope's words. These are God's words. Thus says the Lord. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Let's pray together. God, these are your words that our hearts need to hear this morning. I know so little of the situations represented in this room. And yet, I feel like these are people I know well. But you know it all. You see it all. You know what you want to teach us today, what you want us to hear. So let none of us think this is for our neighbor. Let none of us think that we can somehow ignore or avoid what you have to say. But would each person in this room hear from you today and respond accordingly. Do a holy work in needy hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm in the stage of life of watching children's movies. It's thrilling. And um, Timothy's out in a quip class or in a kid's church. But he actually has an incredibly emotional and sensitive heart. Which is hard for me to grasp. i got to be honest. It doesn't, uh, this does not compute. I so I don't know if you guys have any kids that it doesn't totally compute with you, but you can see where it comes from. That's what we have. So things scare him really easily like the first time we tried to watch Big Hero 6. He didn't make it through the first little robot fighting scene. He's like, that's too much, turn it off. That's all I've seen of Big Hero 6. (laughs) So we have a little set of movies on repeat. There's about ten of them. Cars 1, Cars 2, Toy Story 1, Um, Winnie the Pooh, oh yeah. Uh, There's probably a couple more, but it's not a very long list. And I found that, that I really enjoy kids' movies that have some adult connection in them. Are you like that? Like, there's something about Despicable Me that I just resonate with. <laughs> I know the box of shame is wrong. Sounds interesting, right? The guy in the, um, the fair scene who, like, jokes with the kids, you know, and then uh, Groo pulls out his rocket and nukes the fair booth, you know, like, all right. There's something about that connection that helps me. And I, I probably enjoy those movies a little bit more. I fear a little bit that with the story of Noah, we've done the reverse, which is that we've made it such a kid's story, like, like there's some like, houseboat trip that is happening here, and you get to invite all your friends, and everybody comes in, and we can color it, and make it all pretty, that we might miss the weight of what God wants us to hear here. It's striking to think that this is the second story, really, in our Bibles. Now, we have creation and the fall. And then we do have that moment with Cain and Abel and a little bit of, like, these are the families that happened after that. But, but as God reveals to us who he is, in many ways, this is a bit of a starting point. This is a bit of early stage, how do I know and understand God and his interaction with humanity how it works with people. And, and I'm not sure if I was writing a book, this is where I would start. But God in his wisdom is like, you need to understand the big picture of how this works. Of how I designed the world I created, how I set things in order, how I set standards and rules and directions and what happened with people. And, and I think as we dig in here, we go, and this is us. And this is me. And it doesn't really start off great, does it? We see in the early verses of this chapter that there is evil everywhere. We see in the first four verses that there's kind of a, a different time going on. If you want a deep and detailed explanation and all the answers to your questions that you have in verses one through four, Danny's right up here, He said orange sweater, and he'll answer all that for you. You're welcome. But verse five tells us that there's evil everywhere. Everywhere, you, you almost can't miss the way God says it. Look at verse five. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time, continually. Pretty tough to miss that, isn't it? Now, I know you probably can't see that in great detail. This is actually a map of human time Answers in Genesis does a really good job of mapping some of these things out. And this is if you take the Bible literally, that it actually spells out dates and times and and when people were born and how long they lived. And I know there are all kinds of perspectives on this. But I have a hard time getting away from the fact that the Bible presents itself as an accurate recounting of history with real people. If the Bible was a myth that was talking in ages and had all these things, why would it speak so specifically about people by name, how long they lived, when they had kids, what all their kids' names were, where they lived, people and places and months and days, and the Bible never presents itself as this book of myths and ideas. It always says, this is what happened, and these are the people involved, and this is where they lived, and this is how long it took. So if you do the math, we're not very far from Adam and Eve. In fact, if you do the straightforward math of Genesis, you know, four and five, we are approximately 1,000 years from Adam when Noah's born. And then Noah lives, you know, about 900 years, but the flood happens 600 years into Noah's life. So we're talking about about 1,600 years after the start of the world. That's really not that far. Especially when people are living 900 years. And yet in that brief, relatively brief period of time, the descent into evil is everywhere. If you like math, here's a little math, how we get to where we are. And you can see in the year around 1056, Noah's born. And in the year 1656, the flood happens. So that's a ballpark. That's not perfect. We're reconstructing. And if you do the math backwards, we're about 4,500 years before us. That gives you a, a structure. That's all I'm trying to do there. We can get into discussion afterwards. Again, there are lots of thoughts and opinions about this stuff. But it's impossible to miss the depth of evil that has entered God's world. If I was thinking about this in a few different words, I would use these three words to describe the evil it's expansive. It's everywhere. It's invasive. What does God make the point to say? The evil goes to where? All the way down to the intentions of the heart. And by the way, this is not just some people out there. This is true of us today. Jesus said in Matthew 7, your real problem is not that you can't get the exterior clean. Your real problem is not the things around you making you bad. Your real problem is deep in your own heart. That's where greed comes from. That's where immorality comes from. That's where pride comes from. That's where lust comes from. That's where selfishness comes from. That's where anger comes from. It's deep in our own hearts. In fact, it's interesting, we won't go there, but if you went to the end of chapter 8 and looked at Noah after the flood, God says, "And, and there's still evil in man's heart. It doesn't go away even because of a flood. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, verses 11 and 12 tell us. And it was filled with, what's that word? See that at the end of verse 11? The earth was corrupt and it was filled with what? Violence. Isn't it interesting that our world wants to convince us that violence, seen or experienced, has no effect? It's not that bad. Psalm 11, verse five says, the Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Can I speak to our parents real fast? Be careful about violence. Can I speak to our teens? Take it seriously. It's incredibly destructive. Think about why God hates violence. It's actually the inverse, it's the flip, of how God intends the world to be. What does God want us to do as human beings for each other? Love and care and help and show kindness to do good to each other, to look for opportunities to build up each other. Violence is the exact opposite of that. It's the desire to cause harm to someone else. And we should be careful, even as we would condemn it when it happens on a big stage, not to tolerate it on a little stage because it's the opposite of what it looks like to love. I wrote this down. Instead of having hearts that loved God, fear God, and obeyed him, people were filled with hearts that hated God, disregarded him, and disobeyed him. Instead of hearts that loved their fellow man and sought their good, people hated each other and harmed each other. And can we see that descent in our own culture? Can we see how so much of what's going on has been descended into just yelling and screaming at each other? And, and don't miss this. If we continue down this road, it's gonna result in actual hurt and harm and has in some cases. This is what happens when everything goes bad. How does God respond? I think this is important because we have to recognize this as a foundational question of the Bible. Our kids do this all the time. They kind of try out new behaviors and see how we'll respond what will the response of my parents be if I push the envelope that far? If I do that thing, how will they respond? Well, as humanity descends into evil, how does God respond? Don't miss this. Number one, God sees it all. Look at verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt. Where? In God's sight, In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says it this way, everything is naked, (laughs) there's a word that makes us all uncomfortable, naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. Isn't it amazing how hard we try to hide? Just like Achan buried that stuff in his tent, we try to hide our own struggles, our own sins, our own issues, we dress up, try to look really good, but God sees it all. There's nothing that God misses. Look at verse six. Not only does God see it, he is deeply sad. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. We could take our equip class and have a 45-minute discussion on that phrase. How does God regret? The all-powerful creator, he regrets it, that he had made man on the earth. And, it, the, and the Bible doesn't want us to miss this. And it grieved him to his heart. Look down at the end of verse seven. I am sorry, God says, that I have made them. I've been noticing recently in my own Bible study that the image of God reflected in us goes a lot deeper than we tend to recognize. Have you ever had this feeling? Have you ever had this feeling about a job? I've regretted <laughs> that I ever started this dumb job. I have this feeling every time I start a house project, every single time. And my friends are like, you can do it. And they lie. (laughs) They want to encourage, they want to help, but they lie. And I'm hanging a TV and I'm like, uh, 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 uh." have you ever felt this way about a major life choice? A purchase? Have you ever felt this way about a relationship? Have you ever felt this way about kids? You say, no. Don't lie. This deep sadness and grief is not something that comes out of nowhere. It actually comes from God himself and how he feels and is affected by the evil in the world. God sends warnings. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. You know, God sent these people words and pictures. All you had to do was go outside whatever city Noah lived in and you had a picture that something was coming. I don't know how long it took for the ark to start to take shape. I know it was a long, long project. God sends warnings. This is how God works. And God is way more patient than we are. I'm amazed at God's patience with me. Are you? And if you struggle with similar sinful patterns in your own life, and God keeps graciously sending warnings, he keeps graciously sending help, he keeps graciously reaching out, and maybe you make a little change, you go back, you hold them off, God keeps sending warnings the the latter half of our old testament is just god sending warnings to people through you know Isaiah and Jeremiah and others go to Matthew chapter 24 i want to show you what jesus has to say here when he connects to the story of noah Matthew chapter 24 this is jesus talking about in many ways the end of the world Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning the day and the hour of Jesus' return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. There was warning, but what did people do? They just kept on living life. They kept on marrying, they kept on having meals, they kept on working, they just kept on going with life. But a day was coming. And it's easy for us as human beings, isn't it, to think that because God's consequences don't come immediately, that they're never coming. Second Peter chapter three says God is not missing something. He's not failing in some way because his promises take time to be fulfilled. He's actually showing incredible patience. I'm I'm reminded of the time Lot warned his family that Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed and his extended family basically laughed at him because they thought he was joking. And I, I wonder today if there might be any of you who kind of chuckle in your hearts that any crazy people would believe that a real flood happened or that Jesus will one day return. He's coming. And after God has sent warning after warning in his patience, he unleashes, and I chose that word on purpose, he unleashes judgment. Go back to Genesis chapter six. You see, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God like that. It's fairly interesting that we all believe in judgment. In fact, we make judgments every single day no matter where we go. On your drive home today, you will make a series of judgments about what's good and bad, right and wrong. And um, the, the co-driver that God has so wonderfully given you, will make judgments too. Judgments and evaluations and consequences are a part of human life. But there's only one just and righteous judge. No one, when eternity comes, will say God messed it up. He did it wrong. He's the judge. Verse seven, look what it says. God says, I will blot out man whom I have created. Verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Verse 17 For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Chapter seven, verse four. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. The Bible tells us that there is a great and terrible day of the Lord coming. Can you hear the words of Romans chapter two today? And I would encourage you to hear this on a few levels. One, if you don't believe that you really need rescue from God, if you think you continue living life your own way and ignore God, I would encourage you to listen. But if you've come to Christ, you've turned to him for rescue, I would encourage you to listen on another level. God is at work in all of us, isn't he? There are sin, sins and issues that we all have And God is kind. Listen to what Romans 2 says. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because we are stubborn and refuse to turn from our sin, we are storing up terrible punishment for ourselves. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a kind warning from God. In another place, the Bible says it this way, flee from the wrath to come. If you know Jesus as your Savior, then those words you're spared from. But can I remind you what Galatians 6 says? Whatever a man sows, that he also what? Reaps. A conversation like that just this week. Where does it go from here? You say, man, that's pretty, that's pretty awful. It is. It's sobering, I think, is the word I would use. God's viewpoint on sin and the reality of God's judgment. But the text goes on to tell us about God's grace, his favor, and Noah's faith. But Noah, the Bible says, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We would be tempted to incorrectly judge from verse 8 that Noah had somehow impressed God. But God never gets the order wrong. Noah did what? Found favor. God gave Noah grace. He worked in Noah's heart. And the reality is, as God works in your heart this morning, as he convicts you about sin, as he reminds you of your need for Jesus, as he works in you, that's an act of God's grace, isn't it? Noah found grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about his his experience of knowing God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10 says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul responded in faith. Paul responded with effort. Paul responded in following the Lord. But who was the initial worker and the ultimate worker? God is, God was. Listen to what he says. I worked harder than them all. And here he goes. Though it was not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. We sing a great song. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The only hope for us is that God and his grace would show up. And like he said to Noah, there are plans for judgment, but there are plans for rescue. This is the grace of God. Noah responded in faith. I can only imagine it was a lonely faith. Doesn't it seem that way? Doesn't it seem like the path Noah followed would have been very much misunderstood, disliked? He probably irritated a lot of people. I remember having a conversation with one of our teens a few years ago who since graduated high school, and she was sharing with me how lonely it can be to be a Christian in her school. And, and, and before we moved to Utah, I, I'd never lived in a place like Utah is. But she said to me, Pastor Matt, I don't know that I know a Christian in the rest of my class. And I walk the halls every day very alone. Noah can relate. A lonely faith but it's a sincere faith, isn't it? The Bible says here that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Do you know that's the goal? We have to carry this tension as Christians that none of us is sinless. But do you know that's the goal? In 1 John chapter 2, John says, I write this so that you don't sin. But when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. I ask you, as you wake up each morning, as I wake up each morning, is that the goal? God, by your grace and with your help, would you help me to live in a right way today, free from sin? I think in some ways, because we've made so much of grace, we can become tolerant of sin in our own lives, can't we? Well, how often have we made a recommendation to someone and said, well, there's not too much bad in it? I've done it. Have you? I was convicted as I was getting ready this morning. There's a Netflix documentary that started back up that I have found very enjoyable. And we watched the first episode last night and I probably should have turned it off after like two minutes. But I like it. I'm drawn to it. And I can justify it in my own heart and mind. Don't we live there? Here's Noah. As best he can before God. He's like, God, help me to live free from sin. I like how John Piper says in the Old Testament blameless does not mean sinless. He says a righteous man is a sinner who hates his sin turns from it, trusts God, pursues obedience and enjoys God's acceptance by grace. Can both those things be true? Can we be be people who regularly acknowledge and confess and humble ourselves under our own sin but can we also be people who pursue a life free from sin? That's too high a standard. That's not Matt's standard. Notice that his faith had influence, right? We read here of his three sons, and I don't think that's there to just create a record. I think that's there because Noah, God gave Noah influence in his family. Isn't it amazing how faith spreads through families? It's a beautiful thing. It's an obedient faith. God lays out the plan. Look at verse 22 of chapter six. This daunting, seemingly impossible, build an ark, collect all the animals, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I hope you don't skip over those sentences in the Bible. God makes this, and it says, and Moses did this. He did all that God commanded him. The people of Israel, they did this. They did it just the way God had said. It was an obedient faith. And if we were to look at the end of chapter eight, it was a worshiping faith. After Noah's rescued, he builds an ark. And that brings us to the last moment here. Which I find interesting, and maybe, maybe I've done this all wrong this morning um, because we, we kind of parked at the beginning of evil everywhere, which I think we can relate to in our world and our own hearts. But do you know what the Bible spends most of the time on in the story of Noah? God's rescue plan. It's only eight people. That's amazing. Here's how it's going to work. Here's what you're going to build. The storm shows up. Here's how God rescues. Aren't you thankful that in grace, God finds Noah. In grace, verses 11 through ch- chapter seven, verse four, will tell us that God shares his plans with Noah. you thankfully, you don't have to guess about God's plans, but we actually can open our Bibles and be like, hey, this is what God says. This is what's gonna happen. Well, I don't wanna believe that. That's okay. This is what God says. This is what's gonna happen. And God shares with us the bad news, doesn't he? of our sin and our need for him and the danger of judgment, but God shares with us the good news too, doesn't he? I've got a plan. Look at verse 18. I want us to catch this real quick before we end. God's plan wasn't just to build Noah an ark or for Noah to build an ark for the rescue of his family, but verse 18 tells us, God says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your wife and your son's wives, with you. Don't miss this. God had an ongoing plan for Noah and his family. It wasn't just to get them out of this one bad situation. It was actually to make them a part of his work going forward. God promises an ongoing relationship, and in grace, God extended his rescue to all eight people in Noah's family. The Bible comes time and time again to this idea of a way of escape. That's God's amazing grace. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2. I want to end here. Oh, by the way, how many of you have been to the Ark Encounter? Anybody been? What was that like? Was that a neat experience? Yeah. Our guess is from the dimensions given to us in the Bible that we're talking about around a football field and a half in length and ginormous in height. Um, that's incredible. I, I'm ashamed to say that I lived uh, about an hour and a half, two hours from this for eight years and I have never been. So, got to make it happen, I guess. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. What are we supposed to take away from the story of Noah and the ark? 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. For if God, the Bible tells us, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And if, notice these if statements building, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, this is an amazing verse, by the way, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Look what it says next. From what? From trials. Do you see the extension? The rescue of God is not limited just to the eternal rescue of our souls. It's actually extended to all the places in our life where we need rescue. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. What are we supposed to learn from the story of Noah? Pretty simple. Run from God's judgment. You say, I haven't even seen it yet. Neither had Noah's relatives, his neighborhood, his community. But it was no less certain it was coming. Flee, the Bible says, from the wrath to come. If, you don't, if you've never trusted in Jesus, the one who became sin for us, we sang, to take our place on the cross, to pay the penalty we never could for our sin, to offer us eternal life, if you've never turned to him, it is a grace of God that you sit here today. Not because I'm anything amazing, but because the story of Noah says to us, run from the judgment to come. So that's not a very popular message today. Then I am fine to be unpopular. If you're planting and making choices, which we all are and we all do, that you don't want to reap the harvest of, would you reconsider that today? Would you humble yourself before God and say, God, there's some areas in my life I'm just... I'm covering up and hiding. There's some broken things in my life that I just don't want to deal with, but I recognize that I need your grace. I need your help. I need to turn. Would you run to God's amazing rescue? The first is a warning. Say it kind of makes me afraid. Hmm. The second is a blessing, isn't it? And though sometimes this is hard for us to reconcile in our own minds, this is the God who made us all. May we not try to be smarter than him or think that he's something to be ignored. Galatians, that talks about the harvest that we bear, says God is not mocked. May this be a sober reminder to us all. May we run to him. Let's pray together. God, you know my heart this morning and the weight of these words the weight of this story. Yes, there is spectacular, amazing rescue. The the ark in so many ways points us to the cross, the way that you have made for each of us. But God, we, we only need Jesus. We only need the cross if we understand the depth of our sin and the reality of judgment. You have told us that the Holy Spirit that you sent into the world will convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So God, would you do that today? By your Spirit in our hearts, would you cause Christians who know you to bow before you that we would turn from our sin and run to your grace? That we would bring our trials to you, we would bring our pain to you, we would bring our need to you, we would bring our sin to you. You've told us if we would humble ourselves, that we would learn to be wretched and mourn and weep, that we would experience great grace. But God, if we harden ourselves in pride and think we've got it all together, we've got it all figured out, you will resist us. We pray that you would save anyone in this room who might in their sin continue to run from you and think they can save themselves or that judgment won't come Would every rainbow that is seen remind us, God, that you know how to judge, but would it also remind us that you know how to rescue? Save us, we pray. Amen.